You've tuned in to the Veterinary Today podcast produced by the Illinois State Veterinary Medical Association, or the ISVMA. The Veterinary Today podcast goal is to share the latest trends and developments from individuals making news in the profession and shares information in hopes that veterinary professionals can better serve clients and their pets, livestock, and manage their practices, and establish a more informed, knowledgeable, and engaged clinic staff. I'm Joey McLaughlin, your podcast moderator, and I'm joined by guest podcast host for this episode, Debbie Lakeamp, the ISVMA Executive Director. Welcome to the podcast, Debbie. Hi, Joey. Having uh, been involved in the development of this podcast, it's exciting to be able to guest host this episode with you. Today, we are going to review the guidelines and procedures veterinarians should use when reporting to local state and health authorities regarding potential animal or human exposure to rabies. Rabies sounds kind of scary and very, (laughs) it's very serious though, right? It is very serious, Joey. Um, Today, we are we're going to talk about the specific guidelines for re- reporting rabies exposure and how veterinarians interact with that reporting process. The details of which can be found in the Illinois Department of Public Health's Control of Communicable Diseases Code and the Illinois Animal Control Act. State health officials are currently calling for a renewed review of the guidelines and standards regarding rabies. And that is why we are talking with Dr. Connie Austin our Illinois State Public Health Veterinarian with the Illinois Department of Public Health and a longtime friend and ally of ISVMA. Dr. Austin, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with veterinarians about rabies. Absolutely. We're so glad that you're here to share your insights. So let's jump right in, Dr. Austin. You've recently issued a report stating that there are some concerns regarding the status of rabies in Illinois. What's the latest? What's happening? And can you detail those concerns for us, please? Sure. So this year already, we've had 75 rabid bats identified, and we've tested over 1,200 bats. So in August, we had about half of the bats. We're just in August alone. And what's happening is our main bat species is the big brown bat. And unfortunately, they like to live in colonies, and they like to live in people's homes. And so what happens is it's like a perfect example of one health because they get into the homes, they're up in the attics, they get down into the living areas, and then both the people and the animals are or pets can be exposed. So we really want people, I always tell veterinarians who um, say, oh, you know, what do, you, what do I do about this bat in the home? I always tell them, well, remember, there's also people exposed. So we need to make sure that we alert the local health department and they can talk together about what the best whether the people were really exposed to rabies or not. And when a public health department calls me, a local calls me and says, hey, you know, this person's exposed to a bat in the house and they're going on about the human exposures. I always, before we end the call, I say, now, are there any pets in the home? And sometimes they say I had an asked or sometimes they say, yes, there were. And when they do that, I say, you know, you need to make sure that owner calls their veterinarian so they can get in and get booster rabies vaccinations. So it's a really great One Health picture, and we can all cooperate together to make sure that, you know, both the people and the pets are have the right things take place after an exposure happens. That's really great information. I'm curious, when we look at the Illinois Department of Public Health Control um, Communicable Disease Code, and how it relates to rabies reporting, as well as the Illinois Animal Control Act, where veterinarians have requirements regarding rabies. 
what are some highlights from those two pieces of um, statute that we need to be aware of as veterinarians? Yeah, so, you know, people just may be unaware, you know, what they need to do when there's a bat in the home. So I really want veterinarians to realize that it's so important that the local health department know that there was an exposure so they can make sure and direct. Sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly where to get rabies PEP or rabies post-exposure prophylaxis so they can help the owner figure out where to go if they were indeed exposed. And um, we really want them to report and really any public health situation that they identify you know, whether it's rabies or something else that they say, wow, this, you know, this is bad. I know several people have salmonella or there's a lot of birds with psittacosis, whatever the situation is, please make sure to talk with your local health department. And we did put them on the list of mandated reporters because we know how important these zoonotic diseases are and um, really want to work with our veterinary colleagues to make sure those are reported so we can make sure the right thing happens and we can hopefully do some prevention. So if our veterinary members have a potential rabies case that comes in uh, today, what is the first thing they should do? If they actually have a pet that comes in that they think has rabies, then that's reportable both to public health and to the agriculture department. So those need to be reported right away. We need to make sure that the animal gets tested for rabies because there certainly are other things that can look like rabies, but it could be something else. So the testing is very, very important. So we want to make sure that happens, but also just notify ag and public health to let us know that something may be happening, that there may be a rabid animal. Are there any specific questions that veterinarians should ensure that they ask if they either have a client walk in with the situation or if they receive a phone call about a potential situation? Because we really are most concerned about bats. One thing is we do get people and not necessarily veterinarians, but just people in general who get a call about this and they tell the person, well, just let the bat out the window or, you know, get it out of your house. And that's actually the worst advice that can, you can give. So we, what we want to have happen, and again, the veterinarian is hopefully knows their client, knows whether they're calm enough to do this or they're kind of totally freaked out and are not going to be able to handle it. But they need to get heavy gloves on and put a container over the bat when it has landed. And the reason for that is we want to test the bat. If the bat tests negative, then no one was exposed to rabies. But if the bat flies away and is now unlocatable, then we're going to have to assume it could be rabid. Or if the bat tests positive for rabies, that is so critical. So the worst thing anyone can do is to tell somebody, just let the bat go, because that's um, really not going to be helpful. So that's one of the important things. And again, another thing is just making sure that veterinarians are aware that the exposures for people are not just a bat bite, but if you wake up to a bat in the room, or if you have physical contact with a bat and you don't know if you were bitten, or if there's somebody in the room like an infant or someone with dementia who doesn't really know what their interaction with the bat was. So there's a lot of factors that veterinarians may not be aware of. So that's why we wanna make sure that if there's a bat in the house, it's not just the pets that are exposed, but also the people may have been exposed. So being sure to um, not give advice about whether they need to get rabies pep or not, but just make sure that um, they are aware that they need to contact the local health department. They may want to talk to their doctor and make sure we get them on the right path to get rabies preventive treatment, which is you know really effective at preventing rabies. Absolutely. I just want to also highlight that while we are talking primarily about brown bats, because that's maybe where we see the most um, concern, they're not the only animals who have rabies and can transmit, correct? 
Correct. Now in Illinois, you know, really bats are our focus, you know, dogs and cats are, I mean, I think we've been doing a good job with vaccinations for pets and we really don't have a problem with dog and cat rabies. Not that it can't happen or that you can't have an imported dog or something where rabies might be present. But in Illinois, we would also worry about foxes, coyotes, raccoons, and skunks. Um, we don't do a lot of testing of these animals, just kind of surveillance testing. So there could be pockets of rabies in these species that we just wouldn't be aware of. So again, if a, you know, a dog or cat is seen tangling, you know, with a raccoon or skunk, that's considered an exposure and they would need to go ahead and get their booster rabies vaccination. That's very helpful. Going back a little bit to um, what is required um, when testing the suspected rabies infected animal. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit, please? Sure, I just had a call from our lab this morning about a bat that arrived and it was dried out and desiccated. So it's really important, you know, with all kinds of specimens that veterinarians would send in, but if veterinarians are responsible for sending in an animal for rabies testing, they need to make sure they do it properly. So we've had bats arrive live at the lab and this is not good. And um, we've had a technician who was bitten by a bat that was still alive. So as a veterinarian, you know, you need to make sure that when you euthanize a bat, it really is deceased and is not going to come back to life when it gets to the lab. So being sure to review those procedures. And we really appreciate veterinarians being willing to, willing to euthanize and test bat or get the bat tested because in small rural communities, the animal controls often will not work on bats. So we want them to be submitted. I hope veterinarians are willing to try to do that and help those small local health departments get that done. We want to make sure that they're shipped overnight, um, especially in the hot times of the year, like August is the big month. We need to make sure they have a lot of cold packs. And again, just making sure that they are indeed dead when they're put into the container. And those are really important things because bats, their brains liquefy really quickly and then they can't be tested. So we want to make sure they get there quickly and make sure they get to the correct lab to have that testing done. And it can be done very quickly. We'll be back with more on our conversation about rabies right after this. Just how many continuing education hours can you earn by attending the ISVMA's annual convention? Clearly, that's an important question because attending can help you receive those valuable hours for licensure. Here's a breakdown over the three-day event of how much CE you can earn by day. Friday, November 3rd, six hours, plus attending the evening CE reception for a total of seven hours. Saturday, November 4th, six hours, plus attending the 7 a.m. CE breakfast, a total of seven hours. And Sunday, November 5th, five hours, plus attending the CE luncheon for a total of six hours. So by attending your choice of presentations and by attending those informative receptions, breakfasts, and luncheons, you can receive a total of 20 hours towards relicensure. Simply go online to www.isvma.org, register by clicking on the registration link in the annual convention banner on the homepage, or by clicking on the ISVMA drop-down menu at the top of the screen, and then click on the ISVMA event registration link. Your ISVMA has booked 25 of the most knowledgeable presenters in the veterinary profession for this year's event, so don't delay. Get your reservation in today. This year's three-day event is at the Tenley Park Convention Center in Tenley Park. You can book your hotel room at the adjacent Even Hotel Chicago Tenley Park by using the code ISV to get the discounted convention rate. See you in Tenley Park in November. Dr. Austin, I'm curious, 
we received several phone calls from veterinarians regarding what to do when they believe an animal has been exposed, like a, a pet has been exposed. Do you have some advice for our veterinarians on how to submit a sample or the process thereof? Yeah, and usually, you know, with the big counties, the animal controls will do this and the veterinarians don't have to do it. But if the veterinarians have to do it, then they have to look up which lab they want are closest to, they want to send it to. And um, again, they have to submit the proper paperwork and um, make sure that it is kept cold during that um, transfer process. So those are the main things, just to make sure they have the right address, lots of cold packs, and make sure they submit it properly and, and know which species can go to which labs. All right, and if they have any questions about that, um, I know that you often take those questions via phone or email, and I know oh, that sure. SBMA has some resources as well yes. for veterinarians yeah. That's that we've fine. worked together on. Yes. So Dr. Austin, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, rabies PEP for people and what it is? So rabies PEP is really the rabies preventive um, treatment that's given to someone who's been exposed to or possibly exposed to rabies. And it is a very kind of involved process that is typically done at an emergency department. So it has to be on the first day of treatment, there would be rabies immune globulin and rabies vaccine, and then three additional rabies vaccinations on days three, seven, and 14. And typically has to be take place in an emergency department. So it is a very costly um, treatment. Um, if you don't have good insurance or you're uninsured, lots of high deductibles, it's it's expensive. So we really want to try prevention rather than having to um, go ahead and get it. But if they need it, it's very effective. I mean, it's extremely effective treatment. So you want to get it if you need it. But we don't want um, people recommending it for, say, like a veterinarian recommending it for someone. They really need to talk to a local health professional or their doctor um, to make a decision about that because I have had a number of complaints recently about how expensive it is. They had to get loans. So we want to give it when we need it, but we don't want to give it when it's not needed. And I think one thing that often happens is in veterinary clinics, you have a client, uh, one of your staff who gets bitten by a dog or cat. And immediately, for some reason, they go out and start to get rabies pep. And really, that's not needed. We can watch the animal for 10 days. Um, dogs and cats are extremely unlikely in Illinois to get rabies. So we do need to make sure that we don't kind of recommend, oh, yeah, go out and get rabies pep, but instead talk to local health departments and they can say, oh, no, here's what you can do. It's very effective to watch the animal for 10 days if it doesn't have any signs of rabies. And that will be fine. You don't need to get treated right away. And that rabies observation can be done in home or in clinic. There are some options where that observation can take place. Is that correct? Right. And that's working with their animal control because different animal controls have different ways of looking at things about how reliable the person is, et cetera, like that. And I was also going to say for veterinary clinics, it's very nice if they can really encourage rabies vaccination, pre-exposure vaccination for their staff, especially for staff, you know, concentrate first on the staff that are going to be handling fractious animals or stray cats or dogs that they're trying to treat um, because a bite can occur. And if they're pre-exposure vaccinated, they're only going to need two doses of vaccine as part of their rabies pep. So it really reduces um, the chance of having to have the full series where you have to go to the emergency department. That's that's wonderful. So what I heard you say is let's make sure that we are vaccinating our, our veterinary clinic staffs, that we are keeping the animals with the veterinarians and we send the humans to the human medical doctors for follow-up. We do not want veterinarians making recommendations cross species 
And in addition to that, um, certainly can always reach out to you for additional information. So just a little bit of a wrap up here. Uh, if I'm a pet owner, is there anything I can do to make sure or anything I can tell my clients to, to do to make sure that they are prepared and protected for rabies exposure? Sure. Well, one thing pet owners can do is just to make sure that their pets are vaccinated for rabies. I think people think if that my pet is indoors all the time, they're not going to get exposed to rabies. Why do I need to get them vaccinated? But in fact, there's a lot of people who can say that, okay, well, there was a bat in my home. We have to assume that the pet in the home is exposed. And then um, the quarantine period varies quite a bit, depending on whether your pet is up to date on the rabies vaccine or not. Um, and there is no rabies pep for pets. I mean, you can give them a booster, but it's not necessarily gonna prevent it if that's the first vaccine dose they've ever had in their lives. So it's so important for them to keep their pets vaccinated for rabies, whether they're indoor pets or whether they also go outdoors. So very important. Secondly is to make sure that their home is impervious to bats. So you wanna make sure there's no holes. I mean, it's a quarter size hole they can get into. So you really need to maintain the house so you don't get them in the house. Half of the time, all of our bat exposures are in the home and frequently, you know, pets are in the home too. So they're going to be exposed. So those are two things they can do. And then, you know, just if they do have a bat in the home, you know, their instinct is let me get this critter out of it, out of here. And they just want to open the window or the door and get the bat out. But that's actually, you know, the absolutely worst thing they can do. So making sure that they have a bat in the home, you know, if they can't, you know, put a container over it themselves, don't, open the window or door and let them out, close the door to the room and call animal control. The only problem with that is if they call, come a couple hours later and it's a tiny little quarter size, you know, a tiny little creature, they're called big brown bats, but they're very tiny. You know, if, if they come back an hour or two later, they may not be able to find that tiny little bat in the room. So the best thing is to put that container over safely if they're um, feeling like they're comfortable doing that. Thank you so much. Um, we've talked a lot about a lot of different aspects of rabies today. You've provided such great information. I'm just curious if there's anything that we have um, not touched on that you would like to share with our audience. No, I think we've covered the major points. You know, the, one of the major points is obviously in Illinois, it's bats. Now keep in mind that if you travel overseas or you get, import a dog from another country or you're bitten by an animal overseas, that's a whole different, it may be a whole different story because the picture of rabies in different countries may be different. So that's one thing to keep in mind. We need to know where an exposure happened to know how dangerous it is. Um, and just making sure pets are kept up to date, regardless of whether they're indoors or outdoors. I think those are the important points. Absolutely. And I think I would just briefly add, if you don't mind, while we all know that dogs are required by state law to be rabies vaccinated, a few years ago, cats were also added to that list. And I do know that we occasionally get some calls with confusion around that. So let's just make that clear that we do vaccinate cats and dogs by statute in the state of Illinois. Yes, and that's very important because I'll tell you when, we're, when, we, when we hear about these exposures in homes, a lot of times at night, which animals are running around? It's the cats. And so they're running around chasing the bats um, in the house and, and the, the couple wakes up and there's the cat you know, jumping on the bat in the bedroom. So cats are very interested and intrigued by bats in the home. So that's very important to keep them vaccinated as well. Dr. Austin, we very much appreciate your time and your knowledge regarding this issue. Many thanks to Dr. Connie Austin, Illinois State Public Health Veterinarian at the Illinois Department of Public Health for her time and expertise talking with us 
about the status of rabies in the state and how to manage reported cases and proper procedures when reporting potential exposure or confirmed exposure cases regarding the disease. And this concludes our discussion for the podcast. Please join us again next time for another episode of Veterinary Today.